every sin you've ever committed didn't just happen. It was given birth to by these cravings that are a part of your fallenness. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How will you resist the attacks of the enemy? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part seven of his current series titled, This Is Your Life. We're looking in the book of Ephesians at three powerful forces that influence and dominate the lives of every single person apart from Christ. Today, Tom will examine the third powerful force that dominates lives because of spiritual deadness. Before you were saved, not only were you in step with the world and the devil's influence, you lived in step with the flesh. Your fallen, self-centered human nature was in direct rebellion to God's will and God's word. But now that you're in Christ, how exactly does the battle with your sinful flesh impact your life? Let's find out as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our study of this great book and of the first paragraph of this second chapter where we have explained for us how exactly it was that we who are so sinful came to enjoy and benefit from the rich spiritual blessings that we studied together in chapter 1. Here, in a sense, is God's sovereign purpose, not for the world as a whole, but for the individuals on whom he has set his love. Let me read this paragraph for you, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your life. This, in a sense, is your spiritual biography because it describes how God, in an act of sovereign grace, brought us out of spiritual death into life. 
Throughout this entire paragraph, Paul is playing just one string. There is just one message he really wants us to understand and get here from this paragraph, and that is that salvation is entirely a work of God from beginning to end. Salvation is entirely a work of God. The spiritual rescue of our souls is initiated by God, is carried out by God, and will be completed by God. He begins by reminding us in these first three verses of what we were. What we were when God found us, and this is what we've been studying together. He tells us our true condition, verse 1, and you were dead. That is, we were dead with reference to God, unable to respond to him in any way, unable to do anything good. The root cause of that condition, the end of verse 1, in your trespasses and sins, or on account of or by reason of trespasses and sins. The practical results of our condition come in verse 2, in which, that is, in those trespasses and sins, you formerly walked. The practical results of our spiritual death was a life of sin. We thought we were free. But Paul tells us here that in fact we were slaves, that our lives were in perfect step with three powerful forces, three forces that controlled our thinking, that directed our decisions, and that dominated our lifestyles. These forces, according to verses 2 and 3, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We walked according to, are in step with, these three great forces. We've looked at the first two of them. Verse 2 begins by telling us we lived in step with the world. Notice verse 2 says, we walked according to the course of this world. That is, we conducted our lives in lockstep with the mindset and values of the times in which we lived. Last week, we discovered the second great force that was a part of our lives before Christ, and that is the devil. We lived in step with the devil himself. Verse 2 adds that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. As we saw last week, there is a personal being of incredible power and evil. And according to God, he rules over the spiritual atmosphere that is at work in those who are dead to God. Satan's primary objective is to blind the minds of unbelievers to the living God, to the true and real Jesus, and to the saving gospel. And how does he do that? How does he promote that blindness? As we saw last week, he promotes human philosophy and ideology. He promotes false religion. He corrupts the true gospel and distorts the true Christ in cults and all kinds of deviations from the true Christianity. He prevents the spread of the gospel by hampering world missions, by persecuting Christians. And if none of that works, he comes to a true church where the true God is worshipped, where the true Christ is preached, where the true gospel is set forth, and he produces, sitting in the pews, false believers, tares, Jesus called them. They look like the real thing, but they're not. This is what Satan does. 
and we walked in perfect step with that religious system that he had established. All of us can find ourselves in one of those strategies of Satan before we came to faith in Christ. Now that brings us to the third powerful force that used to dominate our lives as a practical result of our spiritual deadness. Not only were we in step with the world and we were in step with the devil, but verse 3 adds, we lived in step with the flesh. Look at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He begins with the little expression, among them. That refers back to the end of verse 2, the last group mentioned there, the sons of disobedience. We lived among the sons of disobedience. In other words, we lived among those whose nature is active disobedience to God. We were rebels together. You know, the Bible describes a sort of camaraderie among those who are in sin against God. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. After that terrible list of sins, Paul says, although they, that is humanity, know the ordinance of God, they understand these things are wrong, they have the law of God written on the heart, although they know these things are wrong, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. There is a camaraderie among sinners. There is a a band of brothers, if you would, a spirit like that among unbelievers who band themselves against God. Among them, we too all formally live. Now notice the two important words at the beginning of verse 3. We all. We all. You see, the condition verse 3 describes is universal in its application. There are no exceptions. Apart from God's miraculous intervention and the person of Jesus Christ, there has never been a human being who cannot be described in verse 3. Among the sons of disobedience, we all, Paul says, lived. Lived. It's a very interesting word. It doesn't look like it on the surface, the way it's translated here. But the Greek word literally means we turn back and turn back and turn back. We all turn back to the same behavior again and again and again. It describes habits, patterns of behavior that we return to over and over again. In fact, the word picture behind this verb, translated lived here, is a rut that you just cannot get out of. I understand that. I grew up in South Alabama, and as I think I've told you before, when I was growing up, our family owned an old World War II Army-issue red Willys Jeep. And it was quite a sight to see a family of 12 on this Jeep. We had more fun riding around and blazing trails with that Jeep because we lived on the edge of civilization. We lived in a suburb of a suburb of a suburb of Mobile. In fact, we lived on the edge of Tillman's Corner, just to give you an idea of how far out we were. And there was nothing beyond us. We were the last subdivision, and beyond us there were hundreds of acres of swamp and woods. And so our Jeep cut trails all over those woods. And everywhere we went with that Jeep, just beneath several inches of pine straw, was red Alabama clay. 
So what do you get when you mix a Jeep and Alabama red clay and an annual rainfall of 54 inches, the most in the continental U.S.? A lot of fun for a bunch of kids. Because if we took the same trail just a few times, the tires on that Jeep cut deep ruts into the clay where the bottom of the Jeep would actually drag the ridge between them. And so if you did that very often, you had to be very careful as you came back through. And I remember a number of times driving that Jeep and as, as a young boy and desperately trying to keep the wheels balanced on that middle, that middle uh, mountain, sort of mound that had been formed between the ruts and the other side and trying desperately not to slip back into the rut. And you could do that for a little while. But if it had rained at all and the ground was wet at all, it wasn't long until you you felt the tires slipping and sliding and you found yourself right back in the rut. That's the picture behind this word, lived. It means that no matter how hard we tried, before Christ, we kept slipping back into the same rut over and over again. What was this rut to which we returned again and again? Notice verse 3. We all lived in the lusts of our flesh. There's the rut we kept going over and over again to. Now the word for flesh here is the Greek word sarx. It's a word that has a wide range of meaning, but it has two primary meanings in the New Testament. One of them is the material part of people or animals, the body, if you will, the material part of us. The other is our corrupt, sinful nature, who we are apart from Christ, the natural inclinations of the sinner to rebel against God's will and God's word. And it's the second meaning, our corrupt nature, that Paul has in mind here. It's our fallen, self-centered human nature. That's what he means by flesh when it appears here in the first case. As one commentator says, this is life lived in pursuit of one's own ends and in independence of God. That's the flesh. But specifically here, Paul is not talking about the flesh itself, but about the lusts that are produced by that corrupt human nature. We have a fallen human nature, and that fallen human nature produces lusts. Now, the word lust refers to any strong desire. It's the soul's longing for what will give it delight. So when you see this word lust, think strong desire, or maybe the best English equivalent is craving. Now, in English, when we hear the word lust, we tend to think sexual sin. Always bad. In fact, the Greek word translated lust here is a neutral word. It is good or bad depending on the object of what you crave or the object of your desire. Most often, however, in the New Testament, some 35 times, it refers not to good desires but to sinful desires. It is any craving for what God has forbidden. It's interesting if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, translated a couple hundred years before our Lord's birth. In the Septuagint, you will find that this word lust is the word the translators used for the 10th commandment in Exodus 20. You shall not, and we, we read, 
covet, they use the word lust. You shall not crave, you shall not desire what you shouldn't have. Paul uses it that same way as we'll see in a few minutes in Romans chapter 7. So understand that Paul is saying we have, before Christ, we were encased in, we were completely described by a fallen, corrupt human nature. And that fallen, corrupt human nature generated cravings, strong desires for things that we shouldn't have, powerful cravings of the heart. These desires, these lusts are part of our depravity. They come to every human heart from Adam through our parents and they indwell and control fallen men. In fact, the Bible teaches that a constant state of craving or lusting defines what it means to be unregenerate. This is what you define unregenerate nature as. Turn to Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul puts it like this. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. And notice the next expression. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were enslaved to our cravings and the pursuit of pleasure. So this is in fact how unbelievers act. This is who they are. This is what they do. This is how they think. They are dominated by these cravings. But unbelievers are often, often unaware of them. These powerful desires often lurk behind the scenes. But in reality, the Bible teaches us, it is these cravings or desires that are at the root of every sin. If you think back to before you were a Christian, or even now, every sin you've ever committed didn't just happen. It was given birth to by these cravings that are a part of your fallenness. James even refers to the fact that each of us has his own lusts, his own cravings. You see, every one of us is capable of harboring any lust. But our circumstances, the influence of others, our own inherited propensities all combine and tend to make us more susceptible to certain cravings or certain lusts. Now look again at Ephesians 2. What does Paul mean when he says that we lived in the lusts of our flesh? He means that before Christ, these sinful cravings that are a part of our fallenness dominated and drove our lives. We like to think of ourselves as free, but we weren't free at all. Instead, we were driven by these cravings that crawled like loathsome insects out of our souls, and there was nothing we could do to stop them. Now, I know that when you hear this, I'm speaking to people here in the United States, in Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, who are intelligent, successful people, and you may be sitting there saying to yourself, I don't know who Paul was thinking of, but that isn't what I was like. I was respectable. I was honorable. I was a decent person. I tried to help other people. I wasn't involved in any gross sin. You know, I really wasn't that bad. Listen, the fact that you didn't think of yourself this way doesn't change the reality 
because we are rarely accurate in our own self-assessments. Our self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. You see, you don't have to know you have cancer to have cancer. You can think you're perfectly well and be dying. Fish don't know they're wet. Why? Because it's so much a part of their environment, they're not even aware of it. In the same way, neither are we. So the fact is, this is how all of us lived. Now, look back at Ephesians chapter 2 again. I want you to notice a crucial change that takes place. Notice the pronouns. Verse 1, you, your. Verse 2, you walked. Verse 3, we too. You see, at the beginning of verse 3, Paul changes pronouns from the second person singular, a rather second person plural, you, to the first person plural, we. That doesn't mean that the first two verses didn't describe Paul. They described him in every center. But the fact that he now changes pronouns is significant. Paul purposefully includes himself. Now, you and I are so accustomed to this that it really doesn't startle us. But if you had known Paul prior to the Damascus Road, you would never have said that Paul lived in the lusts of his flesh. In fact, notice how Paul describes himself over in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, let me tell you what I was like before I came to faith in Christ. He says, if, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more reason to put confidence in the flesh. Verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the, tri- of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that stayed faithful to God. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, I kept my Hebrew culture. I didn't buy into the Greek culture around me. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in God's law, found blameless. Paul says, listen, if you had looked at me externally from the outside before I came to faith in Christ, you wouldn't have seen anything that would have caused you to think I was anything other than a man who loved God and was pursuing God. With that kind of reputation, how can Paul say that he lived in the cravings of his flesh? I mean, we understand this is true of gross sinners, but what about the religious? What about Paul? What about Buddhist priests? What about Mormon elders? What about Roman Catholic priests? What about false teachers on television? What about those people who grow up in a Christian Bible-teaching church and family whose lives seem to be moral? I mean, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. There appear to be a lot of good moral people in the world, like Paul before he became a Christian. How do they live in the lusts of their flesh? Well, remember, Paul just told us he was what? A Pharisee. What? did Jesus say about the Pharisees? What was his assessment of the Pharisees in spite of their external conformity to the law of God? Turn back to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Here's how Jesus would have described Paul before he came to faith. Here's how Jesus would describe anyone who appears to be outwardly religious, outwardly 
a man of God. Jesus says, woe, this is verse 25 of Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now watch his conclusion, verse 28. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That second word is a very interesting word. You are lawless. You are in absolute unconformity to the law of God inside your heart. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part eight for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.